Hello, welcome to York Street. We hope that this sermon will be an inspiring and impactful one, just what you need at this time. For any of our sermon-based studies, please head to our website at www.yorkstreet.com.au. So grab a cuppa, grab your notebook, whatever you need, and we hope that you enjoy the sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Andrea. It's my privilege to share with you again today. It will be Tim next week. You don't have to keep listening to me. But I'm very excited to share with you today because it's just so heartfelt and that's what I do. (laughs) So I would just love um, to begin by praying. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time, for this sacred moment in this space. And God, I pray that what comes across today will be your words. God, if there's anything not of you, would it just fall away? And Father, I pray that every heart would be soft right now in this room and able to to see who you are in your heart and your invitation. I thank you that you're here with us, Holy Spirit. Come and do your thing. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus preached... The options of everyone who was there listening changed. Have you ever noticed that? Last week, we began our series on the Beatitudes. If you weren't here last week, can I invite you to go back and listen to that message? Because it's going to help you to make sense of everything that follows for the next couple of months. We're inviting you on a journey, and that's going to be so much better for you if you've got that foundation laid. So you can find that on our website. You can find it on YouTube. Here's a really quick revision. Honestly, it's not enough for those of you who weren't here, so please don't rely on this but just to get our our brains going for the day. The Beatitudes are the entry point to the Sermon on the Mount, which has some of the most important teachings of Jesus all nicely and neatly in one place. You can find that starting in Matthew chapter 5. Last week we saw that in chapter 4, Jesus came onto the public stage and he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Some versions of the Bible use the words, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those of you who were here last week, you'll remember I made you do that weird hand thing. Hold out your hand, look at it. It's actually very close, isn't it? So the kingdom of heaven is very close. And Jesus started traveling around the whole area. He was teaching and he was healing and news about him was spreading like wildfire, which shouldn't surprise us because he was doing the miraculous and he was changing people's lives. So people were flocking to him from everywhere. Who were these people? We saw that in that culture, they were the unimportant, the insignificant, the hurting, the sick, the poor, the deprived, the deficient, the spiritually destitute, those who were pushed to the absolute margins of society. They had no voice, they had no power. So having ministered to the needs of these people who were crowding around him, Jesus then wanted to teach them. So he moved up to a higher place up on the hill where they could see and hear him well. And then in the midst of this mass of raw humanity and with them hanging on every word he said and surrounded now by the show and tell of people who had just been healed and received a touch from heaven, Jesus taught about the availability of the kingdom of God. 
And in the opening lines of his sermon, Jesus radically redefined who is blessed around the least likely candidates. And he said this, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. What a strange, odd, very controversial and brilliant way to begin a sermon. If you're new to Jesus and to the writings of the New Testament, and this is your first time hearing or reading the Beatitudes, you might be sitting there right now going like, What? That just doesn't make sense. Jesus, are you out of your mind? Not much on that list actually seems like a good thing to me. Who wants to be poor in spirit? What's so surprising though is who Jesus calls fortunate. And at that time, people assumed that only the most wealthy and attractive and powerful were blessed. Poor, sad and suffering people were actually thought to be cursed. Yet with these words that Jesus is using, he seems to be affirming everything about these people. And he's taking those who from a human point of view are the furthest away from God's blessing and lifting them up as examples of God's touch. And he's sharing about the availability of the kingdom to them beyond all existing assumptions. We also unpacked the word blessed, kind of important that we know what that means when we're talking about blessing for eight weeks. It's the word makarios in the Greek. And we landed at the place where this word blessed, makarios, even though we don't quite have an English equivalent for it, is like saying to people, congratulations, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you. Can you imagine Jesus making these statements in this crowd and locking eyes with a beggar and saying, blessed are the poor in spirit? Or with a grieving widow who is now so vulnerable and saying, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus is saying to them, makarios, congratulations, over and over again. It is a really bizarre list. It's pretty radical stuff. I mentioned last week that the kingdom of God is both complex and simple. Its complexity is found in the mysteries of God, those things that we don't understand. But it's simplicity in the way that we discover it, simply by putting our hand in the hand of Jesus and following him. I want to add an extra layer to that this week. Didn't want to just do too much last week. But one of those mysteries of the kingdom of God and something that we need to try and wrap our heads around is that the kingdom is both a present reality and a future hope. Theologians call it the now and the not yet. So tuck that one away in the back of your minds as we journey through today. So we're jumping into our second beatitude today. I wonder if you've noticed the graphic of the stained glass window yet. Yes, it's up there. Paul, thank you. Paul does our graphics for us. It's been deliberately chosen. And even though we'll be looking at one blessing each week, we want to invite you to think about them not as separate entities, but rather as part of a bigger picture, a bit like a stained glass window. So each part contributes to the whole picture. 
And you can actually view each one in the light of all the others. When you look at them all together, you realise that they fit into a beautiful portrait. So here's the second part of the window. Matthew 5.4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This beatitude flows out of being poor in spirit, which is what we looked at last week. And Jesus says to this crowd on the hill that they are blessed when they mourn, when they enter into the pain and the heartbreak of this world. We live in a world of wonder and great beauty and so much to celebrate and enjoy. There's so many amazing things. But it's also a world of difficulty and conflict and tragedy and suffering and unfixables. Sorrow can show up in a heartbeat. And sometimes the only thing that makes sense to do is to grieve. In ancient cultures, they were awesome at this. They knew how to mourn. They tore their clothes. They poured ashes on their heads. They sat in the dirt and raised their voices in lament. Some cultures today actually still have professional whalers. Did you know that? However, we in the West don't seem to be quite as comfortable with grief and pain. And often our first instinct is actually to run away from pain or sadness and to try and block out whatever we find too difficult to face. We seek all sorts of ways to escape or distract or numb ourselves from the realities of life. We drink a little bit too much, watch a few too many shows on Netflix, develop a dependency on food, pursue some retail therapy so beautifully available to us online 24-7. We find our coping mechanisms, whatever they are. And our culture is always so faithfully there, ready to sell us something to help us to escape or numb or distract. But here's the thing. None of these are designed to bring lasting comfort. At the end of the bottle, at the end of the block of chocolate, when the binge-worthy series finishes, or when the thrill of your shopping purchase arriving wears off, you're still stuck with the same problems. And if your heart breaks and you don't take the time to mourn, the pain only goes deeper. And then your sadness ends up leaking out in other ways. Anger, sarcasm, stress, anxiety, depression, compulsive activities and a whole load of other things. I want you to think for a moment of a beach ball. If you're in a swimming pool or at the beach and you hold an inflated beach ball under the water for a long period of time, what's going to happen to it? Has anyone ever done it? Summer activity for you. <laughs> it automatically pops out the side eventually. You can't keep holding it down. Grief forced down is exactly the same. And it usually pops out when you least want it to. What if we could find a different way to that? What if instead of running from our pain, we could discover a truer and a longer lasting comfort? What would be, that be like for you? In the words of Mark Scandrett, Jesus always invites us to confront our distorted responses to life and to return to what is most real and true. And with profound wisdom in this beatitude, he invites us to stop running from pain and sadness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Adele Alberg Calhoun writes this, 
Learning what to do with our pain and our grief is a large part of the Christian journey. Culture says, buck up, get a grip, control your emotions, don't feel, don't talk, stuff the pain, pretend or medicate if you have to, but get over it and move on. Christian culture can say, if you are full of faith, you won't get hurt, confused or discouraged. You won't feel hopeless or have a life filled with pain and loss. This myth doesn't do justice to our lives, to scripture or to the life of Jesus. I think sometimes the church has unhelpfully created a space where we think we're not allowed to be sad or disappointed, or mourn, or lament. And if we do, it means that we're not trusting God enough, or our faith is too small, or we're not Christian enough, or whatever it is. Sometimes it's simply that we don't want other people to know that we're struggling. It's actually a pride thing. I recently had someone say to me, you've got to put on your church face to come to church, right? And I distinctly remember another Sunday morning when I asked someone how they were as they were leaving. They just really quietly and genuinely said to me, okay, I guess I have to be, don't I? When I disagreed and said, I don't think so. I think it's okay to not be okay. The tears started to fall. And she told me about the most heartbreaking loss they'd experienced as a family that week. Hearing things like that, hearing that people think they have to put on their church face to come to church, breaks my heart and it actually really frustrates me because I don't think that shows the heart of Jesus at all. Of course, we do read Bible verses like, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, James 1, 2. Or Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's the word of God, it's true. But there is a deep and sacred faith walk that those who grieve must go through. You can't rush your pain as much as we would like to sometimes. The only way through grief is through it. People need time to walk in the darkness for long enough holding God's hand, to know and be able to say that things will be well again. And when they walk well and at the pace they need to and receive the comfort of Jesus, they usually come to that place of saying, God, you are still good. I will still follow you. Rejoice in the Lord. It is well with my soul. But it's a journey. And it's usually in hindsight, as we've experienced a new intimacy with God through our dark moments and our troubles, and we can see how it's grown us, that those purposeful things then come to light for us. And men, talking to you in the room, can I super carefully say, without boxing you all into this category, because I know you're not all like this, We know that some of you don't cry or express your sadness as easily as some of us women do. Our brains are bathed in estrogen. We have a hormonal advantage. It helps us express our emotions so easily and we have a lot of them, don't we women? (laughs) But I have a sneaking suspicion, men, that you still feel the emotions. Perhaps sometimes you find ways to suppress them. Because at times our Western culture has wrongly told our precious men that it's not manly to cry. 
or it's a sign of weakness and they have to be strong. With both of those things I've just mentioned, I think of my own beautiful dad who at the age of 20 had his life shattered in an instant, a literal instant. He lost his gorgeous mum and his beloved little brother and sister in a car accident. When they collided with a train, the sun had blocked their view that morning. And his father and his other brother and other sister were all seriously injured in that accident. My dad was the only one in his family of seven, not in the car that morning. And he went home to an empty house that was empty for a long time. And his life was never the same again. He was never given permission to grieve. Back in 1960, you just got on with life. The resilient generation. However, 60 years later, on the anniversary of that accident, the tears finally came for him. He just started crying. He was 80. That grief couldn't be held down any longer. What a price to pay. 60 years of carrying such deep grief. Like, my mind just boggles at the thought of the weight that he's carried for all of those decades. If you've been told or you think that you shouldn't grieve or cry, I have a two-word answer for you, or perhaps it's an invitation. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty-five. It's the shortest verse of the Bible, but boy, it's powerful. And it helps us to reimagine the possibilities of life with God. In John 11, we read about the death of Jesus' friend Lazarus and the reactions of his sisters, Martha and Mary. Let me read, starting from verse 28. After she, that's Martha, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how much he loved him. All three of these siblings were very dear friends of Jesus. And when Jesus finally arrives there, he's met by a devastated Martha. And Mary just falls at his feet sobbing. Several of their friends follow suit. Tears are streaming down their face. And we read that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then it was his turn. Two verses later, we read that Jesus weeps, not just cries, but weeps. And so openly that the crowd of friends and family were able to say, see how much he loved him. Don't miss the significance of this. Jesus knew what he was going to do next. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He can see the bigger picture. And yet in this moment, he still weeps. Perhaps this tells us something important about the nature of grief and hope, that they're not opposites, that they can exist together, and that hope, real hope, 
is large enough to be able to hold our grief without crumbling under its weight. Real hope knows how to sit with pain and hold space for it. I find these words of Aaron Smith so insightful. He said, Jesus weeps with Mary. He sits with her, holding space for her grief, her lamentation, her sorrow. He doesn't say, it's going to be okay. He doesn't offer some quip that everything happens for a reason or that Lazarus is in a better place anyway. No, Jesus sits in the ashes with Mary weeping. He holds space for her feelings, knowing that she can believe that all will be well at another time. Now is the time for sorrow to run its course. Jesus sits with Mary and compassionately, empathetically weeps with her in front of Lazarus' tomb. How beautiful is that? We follow a Jesus who will let you cry at his feet. He doesn't expect you to just be okay and get over it and to say, I count it all pure joy straight away. He's deeply invested in you, profoundly moved by what you're going through, and he chooses to sit with you. I wonder if you've ever stumbled across the little verse tucked away in Psalm 56.8 that tells us that we have a God who counts every tear. The Message Bible paraphrases it like this. You've kept track of every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered in your ledger, each ache written in your book. This beatitude is significant for us. It gives us permission to grieve. It allows us to enter into the sadness and the sorrow of this world that we find ourselves in and not have to suppress it or hide it or to try and comfort or isolate ourselves from it in ways that simply don't last. Jesus is giving us permission to go beyond saying everything's okay and to just be really honest and to say that's heartbreaking, that hurts, I'm struggling right now. And he invites us to bring it to him, to have the courage to name it, to sit with it, to weep if we need to, and to experience his comfort. Whether you're mourning the state of your own soul or the brokenness that you're seeing in the world around you. Are you mourning today? Are you grieving? Are you sad about something? The death of someone near to you? A miscarriage? A wayward child? A challenging health diagnosis or ongoing illness? Shattered dreams, a struggling marriage, your unwelcome companion anxiety that's now following you around, fractured relationships, changes in your body or your mind as you are age, the loss of a pet, your relationship status, maybe your singleness, the uncertainty of your future, hurt, disappointment, wounds caused by others, Regret, a seemingly impossible situation that feels like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Personal suffering, a long season of hardship, maybe COVID season stuff that's just sitting under the surface for you that you haven't dealt with yet. The loss of anything dear to you. Where there's loss, there is grief. Let me ask you another question. When you look at the world today, 
What breaks your heart? I think it would be really interesting to have the time to just allow people to speak those things out in this space today so you can hear what's breaking each other's hearts. What about you? What's broken in you? Where do you ache? Do you feel loneliness, pain, disappointment, loss? Maybe you're grieving over your own spiritual state and you can see that you haven't been right with God and you're sorry for what you've done. And at the moment, you're actually shedding tears right now rather than making excuses for it or blaming someone else. That's a good thing. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Being sad over your sin is so much better than being flippant over it. Can I also say that grief is not a competition. What causes your sadness needn't be compared with anyone else. And your grief journey is going to be different too as you walk through it. It's going to be unique for everyone. So to those of you who are grieving something today, those of you who are probably sitting there with a bit of a lump in your throat right now, I want to look you in the eye as much as that's possible from up here. And I want to say to you, it's okay. What you're feeling is okay. You don't have to hide your emotions. It doesn't mean that your faith is weak or your hope has failed. And God is not frustrated that you are sad or grieving. You don't have to pretend it's not happening. Jesus welcomes mourning. And just as he did on the hill that day in that mass of raw humanity and stuff that people were going through, he actually says, Makarios, blessed are you, congratulations, right on, way to go. Because you are vulnerable enough to enter into the pain and the heartbreak of this world and feel the sadness of it. And as we take our loss and our pain and our disappointment to Jesus, we don't find someone who heaps condemnation or shame on us. He just doesn't do that. Jesus has been there. He knows what it's like. Scripture calls him a man of suffering and familiar with pain. That's in Isaiah 53.3. And his promise to us is that if we'll step into this and lean into mourning rather than trying to self-protect our hearts and run away from it, is that we will be comforted. I love the good old dictionary definition of comfort. It's actually quite enlightening. A state of physical ease and freedom from pain or restraint and the easing or alleviation of a person's feelings of grief or distress. Jesus comforts the grieving heart. Psalm 147.3 says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Brokenness and pain are not the end of the story. And here's the beauty of the now and not yet of the kingdom of God. And this is so good, so listen closely. In Revelation 21.4 we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. One day God will wipe away every tear. Every sorrow will be behind us. That is in the future. 
We can look forward to that with hope. But until that day, we do have a place to go with our pain, a place where we can experience the divine comfort of the Holy Spirit that brings peace when there's nothing else that makes sense. That's the beauty of Emmanuel, God with us, and the beauty of the Holy Spirit, God within us. It's the Jesus way. We may not be able to understand it all, but a God small enough for our minds is not big enough for our needs, yeah? So here, now in the present, there's blessing for you. For tomorrow, there is hope that one day in the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, all the sad things will become untrue. One day, Jesus will rule over every square inch and everything God intended in the beginning. So live in the present in blessing and the future in hope. And for those of you not in a place of mourning today, you, dear friends, are invited in Romans 12, 15 to mourn with those who mourn. Would you pray with me? Jesus, those two words in Scripture, Jesus wept, are two of the most heartbreaking and comforting words that show us that you are familiar with pain and loss. We thank you that you are so tender with our grief and gentle with our sorrow. We thank you that you hold us so close to your heart in the midst of our ache. And we thank you too that you give us hope that our hurt won't last forever. Amen. If you would like prayer or to find our sermon-based studies, please head to our website or check the description below for a link. If you enjoyed the video, feel free to share the video, like, subscribe, and hit the bell icon for updates of when we release new videos. Remember, life can be tough, so let's do it together.